Thursday, May 11th, 2017. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Bill Runyon, and tonight we're going to review Lucifer Princeps 2015 by Peter Gray. Now, this book is quite different in style from its predecessor, The Red Goddess, which, although well-researched, explored the background and origins of Aleister Crowley's Babylon in a popular style. Lucifer Princeps, however, is a scholarly work and might even be an academic dissertation or thesis edited for the lay reader. Now, being an academic work, it suffers from the assumption that the reader is familiar with the material that the writer is working from. Now, fortunately, this corpus is mostly biblical and apocryphal, but he cross-references other mythologies. Nevertheless, the book is a wonderful resource and a great contribution to the Western esoteric tradition. He starts with Isaiah's lament and curse as the beginning of the Lucifer's fall from heaven story. Now, this sets the stage for a parade of sources from ancient Sumerian and Canaanite mythology. Now, we learn about the first ascent to heaven by the Sumerian king, Etana, and then Canaanite god, Athar, who tries to sit on Baal's throne. We learn that the Yahwehists hated the pagan gods of the heavens and that the war in heaven was actually Yahweh against El and the Elohim. Lucifer is finally revealed as our old friend Samyaza, the leader of the 200 fallen angels from the original Book of Enoch. Now the author concludes his work by offering us a mini grimoire of Samyaza and his 20 officers leaving us the job of attaining their sigils, which we will certainly do. So, if you want to get a head start on this project, tune in and give a listen. Now, this is a remarkable book, and, and uh, we are we're in debt to Peter Gray for having done all this research and done this job, and he's, and he's done a really, really good job, because basically... Uh, this uh, this this book this book tells us about the origin of ceremonial magic and witchcraft, and and it uh, it it documents it it it, it gives us the, the the real story. And of course, this whole idea of of um, Lucifer, the fallen angel. Uh, we've always known, at least I, I, at least I have always realized that that this came from uh, the Book of Enoch, and uh, and yet putting this together in a scholarly, convincing uh, thesis, the way he's done, is something, frankly, that is rather a daunting project, and and I really, I really, as I say, I. I I think we all owe a debt to uh, to Peter for having having done the donkey work and 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 he has a very very uh, effective style, but it is just a scholarly work. Whereas that uh, his his um, appreciation of 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 Babylon of of the goddess uh, that we that we did last week that's the red goddess 
that was done in a and in, in really he researched that very very well and, and researched it very thoroughly, but he did it in a in a popular style, whereas this is is done in a scholarly in a very scholarly way, and uh, so let's get right to the to the to the meat of it. Uh, Essentially, what what the argument here is, or the question, and whenever you do a do a work like this, you have to say, okay, what's what are we what what question are we asking, and what are we answering? All right, the question that we're asking is, who who was Lucifer, and uh, what is the what is the uh, uh, the origin of Lucifer's fall and Lucifer and and What's his connection with Satan, and uh, and what has this to do with uh, with witchcraft and magic? Now that that's what that's the the argument. That's what he that's what his uh, what his argument is, and that's and that's what the questions he's going to answer. Now, as Peter points out, and as we all know, the Bible, especially the King James version, the Bible is the biggest source of information on witchcraft and magic and shamanism and and uh and the mythology all behind uh, uh behind our our western uh, magical tradition so much of it comes from the bible and this uh, this study of course is rooted in the bible now um one of the things that we're going to deal with here that is of course very near and dear to my heart is that so much of the origin of of this as is in Canaanite mythology. In the mythology of the land of Canaan, before the advent of the the Yahwehists or the uh the followers of Jehovah, the, the followers of Moses. Uh and and to understand, to fully understand this, you have to understand the difference between Canaanite mythology, the great uh, great god El, uh, El Elyon, the Most High God, and the Elohim, uh, who were his, his pagan pantheon, and between them and Jehovah. And uh, or Yahweh, who was really a little tribal god of the Habiri of the, the Hebrews, uh, who uh, rose up and and actually took over uh, from from El Elyon, and and that's the real war in heaven, and this book uh, certainly makes that clear. Now, where this business of the of the fall of the angels, the fall of, of Lucifer and all gets started is with Isaiah. Now I don't even though Peter recommends that you read the whole book of Isaiah. Oh God. Isaiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. And it is not a fun read. It's it's Isaiah's lament and and his curse. He's lamenting. He's sitting on the on the shores of the of the Tigris and Babylon, and he's weeping about and about the, the, the you know the uh, how Israel lost and went into bondage and all that, and all of the mistakes. And he blames everything, of course, on on uh, Israel itself. 
and especially on the women, and uh, and on all of the sins of the uh, of, of, of the, the Judeans, and uh, and in the course of this, he recounts the the fall of of, uh, of this this angel Lucifer, who he equates with the morning star, and and this. This is really, as I said, this is this is where the whole Lucifer thing uh, gets started, and Lucifer wasn't originally Satan. Let me let me read the first chapter of the book, which pretty much sets the sets the scene for the whole thing. There's no introduction to this book, which which is unfortunate. There should be. I mean, really, because uh, when you do a when you do, uh, probably there wasn't. Originally, if this was a doctoral dissertation or a, or a thesis, there would have been uh, an introductory abstract, which would have set forth the whole business. But apparently, that if there was one, that got lost out in the editing process. So the first chapter says the history of error. It is proper to begin by quoting scripture, in particular, the perilous lines of Isaiah fourteen twelve. This may seem well-trodden ground, but all exegesis starts with Isaiah. And all subsequent errors have, in a sense, coalesced around this ill-fated pronouncement. The story of Lucifer can be read as the history of the falsehoods, myths, hopes, hatreds, and dreams that this one line has engendered. It is the center point of the web, only made visible by the patient work crafted about it. The majesty is best conveyed in the King James Version of the Bible, a masterpiece in its own right, which throngs with satyrs, witches, sorcerers, and dragons. It proclaims, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cast down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? I'll read that again. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? We should take the time to allow these words to resound in our deepest depths as they have a weight to them that drops us vertically into a shrouded stillness. We respond to their magnetic mass. Before we make pronouncement on this doomed figure of fallen light, we need to sense the gravity of the parabolic descent and the sense that we too are part of it. Our inclination is to sympathize with this romantic figure, to project ourselves down from the heights. It is in truth these mysterious words that have exerted their fascination upon us, having achieved this moment of silent memory of loss. We can hold this fulcrum steady in the gimbal of our pitching hearts. The architecture of this vision and vault is buttressed 
by a history that cannot be sensibly neglected if we are to produce work of any meaningful significance. My task is to examine the contexts of this evocative slur rather than plucking it from history as a pretty bauble with which to adorn our postmodern motley. I will quote chapter and verse as it is from the recovery of this myth that we will ultimately draw the form of the ritual which is performed in a subsequent volume, Lucifer Praxis. There will be time enough for revelation, but first the hard draft of exegesis is required. Fortunately, there is a wealth of specialist scholarly work available without which the task would be insurmountable. Lest this be considered a fool's coat made from the off-coat, off-cuts of others' cloth, I will add that this material has not been approached in this way before, and it is tailored for a specific practical purpose. So it begins. Isaiah is the named author of this crafted curse in what is a great litany of tumbling curses. But as with Solomon being ascribed authorship of the grimoires, this is a convenient fiction. The chronology of Isaiah spans from the Assyrian occupation to the post-exilic period, encompassing the Babylonian exile, and is delivered as if it were the words of a single prophetic author. There is, however, enough context to date the Lucifer verses. This, at least, seems likely to have been written not by the prophet Isaiah, but by Isaiah, son of Amos, in the mid-8th century before the Common Era. These lines have been extracted from a highly political text written in a time of war and disorder when Israel had been defeated and absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. The context is critical. Our author has a radically conservative agenda. His railing against paganism makes the text a repository of heretics. Yet the main thrust of the attack is aimed squarely at the Jewish people who have turned away from Yahweh and in critiquing them simultaneously appeals to the special inner group of the Orthodox. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The rebellion takes a specific form, the opposing of divine order. By acceding to the conquering Assyrians and their vassals to this failing is bound the immortal worship of supposedly foreign gods heaped upon the sins of idolatry and sacrifice are attacks on women such as the scandalous adorned beauty of the daughters of Zion, who are reviled for inciting God's anger. In this regard, it is not superfluous to quote Isaiah 3, 16, 24. 
The exquisite detail of the description creates a locket that contains on one face the hatred of the prophet and on the other paradoxically preserves what would have been a lost vision of beauty. The text is forensic in detail and precise in its measuring out of retribution characteristics that will enable us to get closer to Lucifer than we could have dared to hope when we came to consider his fate. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet, and therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will discover their secret parts. And in the day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon and the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers and the bonnets and the and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings and the rings and the rope and the nose jewels and the changeable suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins and the glasses and the mirrors and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink. And instead of, of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girdling of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. It is women who are so often attacked in Scripture as the weak point through which heresy enters. And it is this susceptibility which furnishes into a willful embrace that becomes a key element of the medieval witch hunts, adornment that is the celebration and enhancement of female sexuality on its own terms is anathema. The demonization of carniality, often expressed as the worship of female divinities, erroneously glossed as foreign, emerges centuries later in the form of the witch-hunting manuals. And one reason to study texts such as Isaiah is that the history of ideas is best understood as a churning ocean that dredges up treasures from the depths and deposits them wet and gleaming on the shore before it drags them under again. What is important about this passage is that it highlights how the fate of the transgressors is matched to their supported crimes, a technique of symmetrical inversion that Isaiah specializes in. An understanding of Lucifer is predicated upon recognizing his origins in this process. Morning Star, of course. Rebellion is the sign of an internal corruption which has led to the fall of the nation to a foreign enemy. In this case, Assyria. Elsewhere in Isaiah, the enemy is Babylon, as it is in Revelation and other apocalyptic works that 
that do not uh, that do not cite Khatim or Egypt. This sense of an inner enemy weakening the state has been a constant political trope. The motif of a fifth column reemerging with the witch hunts in the early modern period. More recently, we find the argument used in Weimar Germany by the Nazian Nazi Party, expressed in disproved notions of race and blood. By McCarthy, whose agents fingered Jack Parsons, and currently by the security state, whose search is ultimately for ideological heresy. It is essential to understand the idea of rebellion in this in its traditional sense, rather than the glamorized or romanticized sense it has come to hold in our culture. The blind imposition of values is one of the most common errors made in reading the past. Rebellion is particular. It has come to be associated with a privileging particular pre-verbal emotional state, one that many are heavily involved in. The all-too-frequent identification with the emotional response to the idea of rebellion prevents us reading history as it was written. We cannot begin to read the past without first acknowledging that these modern prejudices lead us to overwrite the past or to construct histories that flatter us. My aim is to be effective in sorcery rather than, than the, that in sorcery rather than be ensorcelled. Rebellion has become a marketing device designed to exploit the, de- the developmental stage of sexual awakening and differentiation in modern teenagers who have no formal initiation ritual into adulthood. It is part of a deliberate strategy to create consumers subverting the drives of social and sexual dissatisfaction by channeling them into to brand loyalty and, and, and consummation, rather than questioning the values of the corporate state. It avoids the crisis of initiation to keep the population dependent and uncertain in an extended Kipdolphood. Well, I love that phrase. Whilst simultaneously breaking social cohesion in favor of the individual, by which is meant the individual as production consumption units rather than as a sovereign individual. Rebellion is therefore employed as a key element in, in commodification. Individuals are simultaneously hypersexualized and de-eroticized. Marcuse wrote eloquently on this, and it's not necessary to embrace his entire martial theology to utilize such incisive tools of critique. Put simply, most modern rebellion is not rebellion at all. Neither is it harmless. It is actively beneficial to the corporate culture and values it purports to reject. The, re- the rebel is rendered impotent by their, consu- by their consumption, whether of pornography or possessions, caught by their own reflection from breaking free into possibilities of experiences 
not mediated by constant reference to the to the screen ideal. Rebellion has, through these and other methods, been very neatly transformed into a tool that creates self-slavery. Now, this this is very you know very political, somewhat somewhat hyper liberal, but um, I think the point he's making is uh, is very 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 true because if you recall in network. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking breaking from from Peter Peter right now. You recall in network that they uh, that the television industry exploited the uh, the Black Panthers and and uh, and the Symbionese Liberation Army and all of that. They exploited them. They were, they were they they used them for business. Yeah, they were uh, you know there's this 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 uh, uh, so. Uh, so rebellion becomes uh, even 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 left wing liberal rebellion uh, serves the you know serves the corporate cause. But that that is is um, the author here you know kind of ranging into politics. In our case, what this uh, what what is important about Isaiah is that he is scapegoating. He's scapegoating the the people of Israel and the women especially for sinning and and oh well we we fell to the Assyrians and we got hauled away to Babylon because we were weak and because uh, we turned away from God and all of this this is very much like <laughs> you know these these preachers that were saying that 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 9-11 was successful because we, we turned away from God and we were no longer God-fearing, so that, that allowed the suicide uh, kamikazes to go ahead and bring down our World Trade Center, you know. Yeah, that's all our fault. Yeah. Anyway, um, the point here, you know, as far as the, as the women are concerned, to blame it on the women, is that that Lucifer is equated by Isaiah as as the morning star. And the morning star is Venus. And that is, she is the goddess. And and so, you know, one of the aspects of of Lucifer is, is the goddess. And that, of course, also symbolizes paganism. And, and as Isaiah was pointing out, the, uh, the Judeans, after Solomon, were sliding back back into paganism, and um, what's going on here is is that uh, that heaven uh, heaven in, in in which the which the uh, the which the Jews had inherited from from the Canaanites was uh, was essentially God. Uh, El Elyon, the God Most High, El, and his Elohim, who were the gods of the planets, the gods of the planets and the, and the, and the, and the constellations of the zodiac, the, the gods of heaven, and and these were pagan, these were were pagan gods, and so when Isaiah is talking about Lucifer uh, being being expelled from heaven, falling, this is this is really this is the uh, this is the fall of the pagan gods. This is this is what he's really doing. What he's really talking about here is is uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, 
tr- making making himself uh, uh, more important than uh, more important than L taking over. And uh, so let's get on in, into in further into the book here. Uh, I quote: uh, let's "See the lines following Isaiah, which opened the previous chapter, detail Lucifer's curse, his crime." And I will examine them in more depth as the study proceeds. But it is important at this stage to provide an overview of his fall from grace. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. Lucifer is styled as an upstart who seeks to set his own throne in the place of Yahweh. That should read El, not Yahweh. This is not overthrowing order. It is an attempt at achieving parity with the divine. Apotheosis, the elevation to the status of a god, is the aim. This suggests a connection to a deeper strata of meaning. Of an ascendant myth or myths, Lucifer's fate is then pronounced, and it is here that further vital details are given. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit, and they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, and opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch. And as the raiment raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword, that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden underfoot, Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Prepare slaughter for his children for the inquiry of their fathers, that they do not rise and possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. Cast out of his grave, damned to be a wandering ghost and exile who will be nameless and noble and not garner the renowned due for the mighty dead. Branch is here used in a metaphorical sense of the bloodline. And there is also the wordplay of the root and branch, uh, meaning to guard, keep, watch, which is the role of a king who, in breaking with the limits of his duty, 
has become abominable. The contrasting ideas are deliberately set against each other. Isaiah extends the curse to the children of Lucifer, who are stained with their father's sin, a motif I will return to when considering the fate of the Nephilim. But these verses are still scant remarks, not a developed cosmology. We have the sense that Isaiah has revealed and then failed to pursue its narrative. The reason for our misgivings is that these texts presuppose a cultural coine, a shared mythical language, in order to make sense of Lucifer beyond rebel posturing. This language must be mastered, for without it, there can be only sweeping cloud of grand speculative misunderstandings. The purpose of this study is therefore to reorient the occult tradition within this grion. In order, this coin, in order to engage in meaningful ritual actions that are rooted in a shared ancestry. It may come as a surprise to those drawn to Lucifer who seek to escape the limits that monotheism imposes. But my counsel is not to turn aside from, but to confront our Judeo-Christian heritage The Bible is the essential companion to this work, and I have included full quotations of the necessary texts so as not to disrupt the narrative flow. Additional citations are included for those who wish to pursue their exogenic inquiry further. The Bible has, like a slow-moving glacier, not just evolved, but brought the wreckage of the mountaintops with it, though only the hardest stones have endured. Being ground smooth or fissured into grit that slips through our fingers, seemingly unable to impart meaning. But the magician and witch work with the dirt, knowing that it has retained its virtue. We find tradition even here, sifted patiently from the meltwater of tottering, of tottering seracs, whatever a serac is. The bright inheritance is here. Through fast-flowing rivers, it is trapped in the fleeces that glitter. This is nice. He knows what he knows what the golden fleece is used for. Flowing rivers is trapped in the fleeces, which glitter with fragments of timeless gold, impatiently prospecting for the traditions which antecede both Judaism and Christianity, the ever-bright light emerges. At this juncture, I must pause. I have deliberately misled you to quote which names Lucifer is founded on the error in translation. A virus of light. When we read the text in the original form, our cherished Lucifer vanishes like a cat in a coal cellar. Oh, I need to make a little commentary on that. Yeah, he's right, because Lucifer in, in Isaiah, is, 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 is no, there's no Lucifer in Isaiah. It's, 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 um, it's, uh, he's using a word which means loosely, uh, the morning star and and uh, and and uh, Hillel Hillel 
or something like that. Anyway, uh, he's uh, um, um, but what we're really we're really talking about here, and it becomes more and more obvious as we go through this book that that Lucifer is really uh, if, you know, or the or the the, the, the fallen angels. Uh, which are uh, Lucifer is a composite of the fallen angels, uh, and they they really are. They're they're the Elohim. They they are you know if you recall in in in, in the Bible, um, uh, God originally was was one of the Elohim, and was the leader of the Elohim, like Zeus, and, and, and uh, that was El El El, El, El Elyon. and and uh, Yahweh. Yeah, Jehovah is is usurper, and and a lot of the a lot of this that Isaiah is, you know, all of this 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 this, this business about Isaiah uh, talking about uh, about uh, uh, this this uh, whoever this uh, Lucifer you know this this Hillel uh, is is. Uh, this, this, he's really. This is projection. This is psychological. This is the psychological principle of projection. Isaiah is talking about about Yahweh and the priests and those those Levites and 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 the Deuteronomists and and Ezra and that crowd. He's talking about them uh, displacing God, taking over. Uh, you know, a palace coup, if you will. And the palace coup, and and and, uh, and and throwing out the uh, you know throwing out the the original gods. So let's get to the origin of the Elohim here. I'm going to skip to um, what he has to say about Canaanite mythology. A Babylonian original was proposed by the early and influential biblical scholar. Herman Gunkel, but no extant myth fits without violence being done to either story. Ishtar, Enlil, and Gilgamesh have been cited, but the Babylonian thesis have now been abandoned by the majority of academics. Where could the search then lead? Canaanite religion seemed to be the next most likely place for such cultural borrowing. With a pantheon which included El, Baal, Asherah, Mot, and Yam, figures all glimpsed in scriptural sides, yet no significant evidence was available for scrutiny until the discovery of the Ugaritic texts in the 1920s. With further discoveries through the 1970s in what is now Syria, written in alphabetic cuneiform, the texts shed light on many previously elusive terms found in the Old Testament and, as a result, are considered essential by modern biblical scholars. The Psalms, in particular, have been shown to rely heavily on Canaanite texts, and much of the identity of Yahweh is now accepted to have been created out of the fabric of the Canaanite El. Any texts that consider Hillel ben Sahar, that, that was 
that was Isaiah's Lucifer. Written before these discoveries are therefore found severely wanting. The initial response of the academy was to relate the Baal text to Isaiah. One myth in particular was promoted, the Ugaratic tale of Afar, the god and the morning star taking the throne of Baal. This seemed a congruent solution, especially given the mention in Isaiah of a location for the tale, Mount Zaphon, a site that will concern us in the next chapter. We have found a figure in the landscape, but we should not rush to accept that afar of the Baal texts is our sought-after Lucifer on the sole evidence of that myth that that the myth is located at Zaphon, it being the location given in Isaiah for for the fall. Examining the Ugaritic myth a little more closely reveals a major discrepancy. Athar is not thrown down, but in contrast, acknowledges his inferiority and voluntarily abdicates his station. And uh, a quote from the Canaanite text makes this clear. Athar the strong descends, descends from the throne of the mightiest Baal, and rules over all the great earth. It has all the appearances of a negotiated settlement rather than a violent disposition. Deposition. Athar does not measure up. The text relates how his feet do not reach the footstool and his head did not reach the top of the throne. A very different fate to that meted out to Hillel ben Sahar, who is dramatically cast down. One proposed reading of the text is that it records, in the language of myth, a shift in power from Athar, an astral deity and warrior god, to that of Baal, a rival warrior god and the patron of the Ugaritic dynasty. Now, regardless of whether it's negotiated settlement or not, and there are other there are other texts that. Uh, other versions of the fall that 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 are negotiated rather than than, than military, but uh, um, regardless, this certainly had an influence. Uh, the the, the, the Ugaritic text certainly had an influence. You know, no doubt about that. Now, um, the holy mountain. There's two holy mountains involved here: Mount Zaphon, which is is one of them, and, and Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, of course, is the one referred to in the book of, of, of Enoch, or the, where the 200 came down. And Mount Zaphon is is another peak, which is which is sort of the sort of the uh, the Holy Land version of Mount Olympus, uh, in, or or Mount Maru, if you will. Zaphon was considered to be the high point of the midday sun in the eastern Mediterranean as the archetypal mountain in the, in the north. It has the implication of being directly beneath the pole star and thus of cosmic import as the world axis. The vestigial trace of this is found in Genesis where the disposition of the tribes of Israel are oriented about Mount Zaphon. One, one of Baal's names is Baal Zaphon. 
The Holy Mountain housed the cult sanctuary of Baal, built from celestial blue lapis and glittering silver. The mountain and uh, its locale was the site of Baal's battles with Yom, the sea, Moat, Death, and Lotan, the seven-headed dragon. This is echoed by the description of Yahweh, patterned on the Lord of the Canaanite holy mountain in, in Job. Perhaps the passage is another example of a lifted text inserted into the rival religion scripture. Whether the text is patterned or purloined, the God of Israel evoked in Job is identical to the Canaanite Baal, sharing motifs and places, powers, and opponents. He stretched out the north over the empty space and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and the night come to an end. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. He divideth the sea with his power, and by his understanding he smiteth through the proud. And by his spirit he hath garnished the heavens, and his hand hath formed the crooked serpent. Lo! These are parts of his ways, and how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now, this is interesting. In the royal palace, the king lived in a sacred space, designed and built after celestial patterns and guarded against the material world by deities and Apotropic figures stationed at its gates and buried in its foundations. Colossal supernatural beings in the shape of a bull, lion, eagle, and a man, symbolizing the four turning points guarding its gates. These apotropic colossi mark the palace as a sacred space and thus may be compared to the four gardens of the divine throne of Ezekiel and uh, Revelation 4-7, which later reemerge as symbols of the four evangelists in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Lion, Luke, Bull, and John the Eagle. He's quoting Parpola here. The accuracy of Parpola is confirmed by the references to scripture he gives. For those Unfamiliar with Ezekiel and Revelation, I will cite these and additional supporting lines for added context in Ezekiel, the prophet encounters the guardian cherubim. As for the likeness of their faces, they for had the face of man and the face of the lion on the right side and the four had the face of the ox on the left side. And they also had the face of an eagle. By the way, if you read Sancho Nialto's description of L, L is multifaced. This is followed by a vision of God as an Assyrian Mesopotamian king seated in the Lapis Lazuli Palace of Baal, and it is the Theophany of the Storm God. Um, in other words, what we're, what we're 
realizing here is that Canaanite mythology is behind, it was what lies behind the entire concept of heaven and the gods and, and, and uh, the Garden of Eden and, and what have you. And all of this is, all of this, by the way, comes together in the book of Revelation. And uh, that's one of the, one of the uh, uh, you know, Lucifer, of course, is, is, ends up there. And Luke, in the New Testament, Luke is the one who equates Satan with, uh, with Lucifer. Satan, by the way, uh, was not not a fallen angel. He was God's he was God's prosecutor. He, he uh, and, and uh, he, he worked for God, as you know, in the Book of Job. And and it wasn't until it wasn't until uh, until uh, the New Testament, till Luke, that uh, that Satan and Lucifer were were combined. Uh, and uh, this the obvious answer to this is is that Yahweh and Satan were firmly disliked by the Gnostic Christians. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, this, this proves that uh, that uh, the early Christians were 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 a lowest. They were they they uh, you know, Jesus' father in heaven was 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 hell. It was not not Yahweh. Um, I'm going through the book here Finding, finding uh, these um, areas that uh, that really that really bring this this across, as you can tell. All right, such a conclusion does not demythologize the text. When Isaiah evokes the idea of shining light, it is no idle metaphor. The anointed king shines like a star because that is exactly what he is. Neither does the image reflect solely uh, to the Assyrian king. It is used in a wider sense, hinting at the opposition to El Elyon, literally, God on high. See, that, that Isaiah is really trying to indicate that, that, the, Assyrian, that the Assyrian king is trying, to, is trying to ascend and take over. He's trying to uh, do like... Uh, uh, like that Sumerian, that Sumerian king trying to ascend and, 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 and become a god. But this is actually, as I say, a projection. You know, this is how, and and hitting at the opposition to El Elyon, literally, God on high, from rival astral deities and the polytheism of the heavenly court or assembly. This position is expressed elsewhere in the Old Testament as theological and social pressures force Judaism through the difficult transition from a sibling of Canaanite religion with a heavenly theon into a distinct divine dictatorship. Propagandist derision is directed at the solar wisdom and the consequent logic, the celestially ordained dominance of Babylon and Egypt. He putteth no trust, this is from Job, behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. A sentiment echoed and reinforced in Job. Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. 
the astral deities are steadily demoted to the status of clockwork angels, and the storm god himself retreats to the outer darkness. Yet this is to amplify a process of flux, the inability to entirely excise the idea of a story court, or the concept of the divine king proves to be ongoing, an ongoing theological problem. The weight of scripture, the need to appeal to tradition for legitimacy means that the door is left faithfully ajar. Satan slips through this chink as a functionary of the heavenly tribunal and drags with him the heavy ermine of Lucifer's stately robe and as many companions as can be smuggled out under it. The confusion Isaiah creates is in the appeal to a common trope in polytheism, that of the rival young god who attempts to overthrow the leader of the pantheon. But told from the perspective of the unassailable God of Israel, it assumes that the reader has all of these illusions at their disposal drawn from the wider culture of the age and can apply them with, with discretion. The text itself was designed to provide only the barest outlines from which the holograph manifests in the mind's eye. Across the gulf of time, the image can be summoned to flicker, but does so somewhat unsteadily at first, and the flame of vision needs to be carefully cradled. Now, we're getting down to the wire here, so I need to um, skip ahead here. Lucifer is a celestial composite. Isaiah claims that the king of Babylon seeks more than stellar immortality. He hunts a preeminent position in the heavens. He desires not merely to join the company of Al, but to ascend to the throne of the Most High on his holy Mount Zaphon. His hubris demands punishment. The text goes on to attack the entire stellar hierarchy. Now, this is very important because uh, what's going on here is, uh, as you can probably tell, is that that uh, the king of Babylon in, in, in Isaiah is making, the king of Babylon actually is, is a projection of, of, of Jehovah. And, uh, and, and shall come to pass that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners and gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the, in the, in the prison. And after many days shall they, be, uh, shall they be visited. And then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. And when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients, Gloriously. In other words, we're going to take all of the um, rulers of the planets and the constellations, and we're going to and we're going to banish them down to hell. 
And this, this is really, you know, they, they, uh, they were down there way back in in in, uh, in early, uh, you know, the earliest times when the stars rose, you know, when we've discussed it before in the curse of the Moschim, when the when the when the, the stars and the planets rose from the from the from the depths of the horizon. Uh, and they were in the underworld. Now they're going back to the underworld. You push them back down to hell again. <laughs> and uh, hey, this is the this is the key to the whole thing. Isaiah overturns the expected narrative. The body of the king is denied a grave, and the popular burial rites, and he is denied ascension to the stars, and denied a cult. The entire concept of the rival divine authority is an to, to Yahweh. In his transformation into the monotheistic tyrant of the post-exilic period in Isaiah, Yahweh even darkens the sky to prevent the sun, moon, and stars from being seen. The king of Babylon is demonized, representing representative of the intolerable threat to the exclusive dominance of this ambitious tribal god. He embodies an earlier stellar tradition, and beneath that, a chaphonic one, just like I just said, which must be erased, and with it, the memory of a company of gods and the cults to the royal dead. It is, in fact, Yahweh who is guilty of seeking to set himself above all others. That's the crux and the key to this whole thing. And one thing that uh, Peter doesn't do here is he doesn't, he doesn't really deal with, the, uh, with some of the, uh, the theories of the Christian Gnostics that Jehovah was a demiurge. And and uh, that this, of course, validates that. And also, something we we didn't have time to cover was was the relationship between this and the Garden of Eden and and Satan and the serpent. And and of course, we did discuss that uh, that finally in the Book of Luke, uh, Jesus supposedly says that he saw Satan fall with Lucifer. Now, let me uh, let me read this this uh, here. Yahweh conquers El and, and the Elohim. The crime that can be adduced in Genesis is that the sons of God are not fulfilling their correct role in the heavenly court, that is, the praising of the ruling deity. The Old Testament contains traces of the earlier notion of God as belonging to a divine council, the members of which are often described as stars a Babylonian conception that betrays older stellar cults. The sons of God have not fallen. That reading develops out of the text and the stories that are told after it. To make sense out of the bare bones of Genesis, the high Satan of Job in particular is, is completed with the role the divine council are first demonized, and then excluded, and finally reintroduced in the familiar guise of angels who have lost their volition, and merely carry out the orders of the divine dictator, bar one, 
and his cohorts who are allotted a different role. The same process found in Deuteronomy, which instructs that God has no countenance and counsels against the celestial company. And unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. The same curse in Deuteronomy seen in a later stage of development is given dominion and the other, in which the Elohim has given dominion over the entire earth, whereas Genesis, Genesis, he is primus uh, inter pares. Somewhat ironically, the psalm dates from the Babylonian exile and is typical of the apocalyptic response. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth, judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accepts the persons of the wicked, Shalom. Now, what Peter does here is, is he finally, you know, concludes uh, with offering us, as I said in the abstract, he concludes with offering us a rectified grimoire. It's, it's very short. In fact, um, if you get this book, you can the grimoire of the fallen of the fallen angels here is is just two pages, but what he's got here he's he's got for the latest from from the latest uh, translations of the Book of Enoch he's got some Yaza and his twenty and the twenty you know captains of his of his uh, of his two hundred troop uh, uh, he's got. Uh, Samyaza, Samyaza and his platoon leaders. And he's got them all here, all 20 of them. And he has their names in, in Aramaic and the Gematria and the meaning and their powers and their observations and all. It's a very, it's a very concise little grimoire. And as I said, it's left to, the, left to us to go ahead and scribe them up and, and get those sigils. So we definitely need to do that. And, and, uh, and these are these are um, these are the, the origins of the whole Enochian system. Even though Ian Kelly didn't have access to these uh, to these old Enochian books, they had to do it themselves. But but uh, this this is uh, this is this is what Lucifer is all about. And so you could say, if you wanted to, you could say Lucifer is is Samyaza, and. Uh, and uh, this definitely is Canaanite, and and they definitely are are just like um, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. They're servants of El Elyon, the Most High God. And uh, as far as we're concerned, they are still up there, and they're still they're still ruling both the heavens and the earth. Maybe and they just really. In a way, got if you want to look at it this way, they got they got sent back down to back back down to below the horizon. If you want to look at it that way, that's all right. You can. Anyway, this is this is a book that I strongly recommend. But I got but I have to tell you, it is scholarly, and and uh, and it's not it's not an easy read, and you have to be very familiar with uh, the material. By the way, one more thing I want to mention: he 
one thing he does is he, he talks about and lists all of the the apocryphal sources that that the fallen angels are mentioned in besides the books of Enoch, like Jubilees and the book of Abraham and the secret book of John and these various other apocryphal works which have which also contribute in the book of Jubilees of course, which also contribute to this tradition. So uh I say I strongly recommend Peter Gray's book and uh it very much supports uh supports our work and and uh and I don't think it necessarily uh gives much solace to the Luciferians. Maybe maybe it does, if they want to realize what Lucifer really was and and uh and and, 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 that, and then face more power to him. Anyway, next week Robert Bruce and Astral Dynamics, which is a very, very good book wrap up on uh on astral projection. And uh, uh and it may very well be the best book on astral projection since since OPL's uh uh astral projection book. I've been going through it, so next week we'll report on, on uh Astral Dynamics by Robert Bruce. Until then, good magic. And uh, we'll see you next week.